love sushi, I love Japan. My social life has hit the fan. All I have is anime, so I guess there's just one thing to say. Guru Gamesh, my life's a mess. My figure collection is racking up debt. My wife has left, my house is gone. Time to get my butt to Sakura Con. Guru Gamesh. So stop me if you've heard this one before. A charming thief, an ace gunman, a samurai, and a femme fatale with a fickle heart enter a castle. Welcome to the Grugamesh Podcast, the only source for anime discussion on the internet, don't question that. I am the host of the Most Mostly Jay, today with me is my co-host Vikram, and today we'll be hopefully stealing your hearts with our episode on Lupin the Third, Castle of Cagliostro. Yes, uh, funnily enough, this is actually the first time I've watched this one. And, which is quite appropriate because you are in a wide seat of people in English-speaking countries, because funnily enough... This has become the de facto Lupin experience for many people, be it because of its family-friendly nature, be it because it has the pedigree of Miyazaki, and therefore people who maybe aren't necessarily anime fans, but are like Ghibli fans kind of counter among like their honorary brethren. And despite all of that, it was completely different from everything Lupin that came before it. And in many ways is still radically different from a lot of modern Lupin interpretations to this day. So this episode will, it's technically titled Castle of Cagliostro because that will be most of our kind of topic discussion. But I, because I'm pretentious and like to do too much research, um, I'm going to be covering like the Lupin series from the early 70s, what's known as part one, when Lupin's wearing the snazzy green jacket and a little bit of like where Lupin was and what Miyazaki did with it to kind of change its image. So before we get into that, you've watched this recently, Vic. Yes, I watched it recently. Um, I went in pretty much cold. Yeah, um, yeah. What, what did you know of like Lupin, if anything, before I decided we're going to do this as an episode? I knew it was a Hayao Miyazaki film and that it was his debut. That was pretty much it. I didn't even know like the themes. So, to be fair, you're kind of you're on par of people who pick this up in say uh, a, a Suncoast video or a Blockbusters. Then, so you didn't you didn't know anything about Lupin other than he was a bloke who stole stuff. Nope, didn't even. Oh, know you that. didn't even know that. I didn't even know that. Wow, that's actually so. What are your what are your impressions? Considering you had like the freshest, not naive, like the most sort of wide eyed, almost childlike experience of this. Considering I've literally just sat you down in front of this in the past week or so. I was pleasantly surprised. Mm. I, I, because the thing about Hayao Miyazaki films is, generally speaking, they're very, very light on technical plot. Mm. Technical plot. Well, he is like one. He has admitted in interviews that he like he storyboards before he scripts, and a lot of it is kind of just like the emotion of the setting rather than like any sort of tight dialogue scene he is very much he has he is stuck in his ways in regards to how he makes animation and look to be fair to him he's got a pretty solid track record so that's fair yeah no exactly um but the thing that struck me was that compared to some of the other films i've seen of his this is surprisingly technical for for hayao miyazaki this is insanely technical like 
compared to Kiki's delivery service, which mm. basically barely had a plot. Yeah, which was kind of the point, to be fair. Yes. Um, com- uh, <laughs> compared to that, mm. yeah, no, it was surprisingly technical. But more than anything, it just struck me as, um, I think I told you this at a ta- at the time, it was like a uh-huh. semi-serious Johnny English. <laughs> That's actually a perfect comparison because I, um, in regards to Lupin's goofy nature and it's sort of, it's catapulting between serious and somber, you made the comparison to English spy spoof film series Johnny English. I made the comparison to Scooby-Doo and it's kind of a combination of James Bond 60 spy elements to the goofy cartoonish nature which Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata brought in when they were sort of contracted to kind of make Lupin more friendly for audiences, which we'll get into. But that's a really good comparison because this film is a classic action-adventure film aimed more towards family audiences. And yeah, I think you've you've hit the nail on the head with a a Garugamesh classic obscure reference. So, you know, we're, we're we're hitting that goal right out the fence, mate. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's a semi-serious uh, for American audiences who've never heard of Johnny English. I guess maybe it's, it's just all, it's British Austin Powers. I'm trying to decide if Lupin is closer to Austin Powers or Johnny English now. I mean, manga Lupin definitely closer to Austin Powers because he doesn't know what consent is. But <laughs> wait, wait, what about the time travel aspect in the like second or third? Well, Lupin time travels like every other episode. Like, uh, the, okay, so the thesis of Lupin the Third is that every every now and again, a Lupin episode or a Lupin film or a Lupin OVA will start with like a standard heist. The gang is getting together. They're stealing like a precious jewel or some counterfeiting money or they're stealing some semblance of ancient artifact. And then aliens will become involved or they'll travel in time or ghosts will be behind it. I am barely exaggerating with the Scooby-Doo comparisons. And that's kind of, that's Lupin's versatility is one of its strengths. The fact that so many artists for so many different TV, OVA, and film interpretations have kind of just said, um, screw it, I'm doing whatever I want with this. And even Hayao Miyazaki basically did that with Lupin, considering, I think I'm going to get into, like, my early history notes before we sort of get into our thoughts on the movie in general. So, for the uninitiated, which I imagine might be quite a few people considering, Lupin has a dedicated cult following in English-speaking circles, but it's not super in... No, no, it's really in depth, but it's not. It's cult. Yeah, it's it's exactly it, it's cult. It's it's garnered more popularity as it's gone on, but it very much is that sort of hyper specified area of the anime community. So, Loop on the Third is a Japanese manga series that originally created by uh, Katsuhito Kato, known by the pen name of Monkey Punch. Who? Yeah, no, 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 that's his actual pen name. He hated it for years. And he's used that for years? Well, yeah, he died in 2019, but he was kind of stuck with it for years because his editors gave him a pen name. And ironically, it became, it's what he was known as. It was more famous than his actual name. Wait, did you say he hated it or loved it? Oh, he hated it. Oh. <laughs> he hated that his, like, he was known as, he was known as Monkey Punch. I, I would have loved I, that. I, I'd adore it. That's such a cool pen name. I know. I, damn. That's such a great name. Okay, so getting okay, so getting back. Wow, we're already off the rails, and it's five to ten minutes in. If anything, this is we're really hitting season two of a stride. This is the Grugamesh experience summed up. So he 
make this manga series about a gentleman thief, originally based on, they're like loosely based on the novels by French writer Maurice uh, Leblanc, who he wrote the Arsene Lupin novels in like the early 1900s, which is basically uh, French Sherlock Holmes, except he uses a gun more, I guess. I don't know too much about the original origin, but essentially this manga was a raunchy action manga heavily based on stuff like uh, the Sean Connery spy films of the James Bond era, alongside uh, just an interest in guns and motor cars. And it had an adaptation into, uh, sorry, had an adapted TV series in 1971. And the thing about early Lupin that needs to kind of be discussed is one, it is, if you've only seen Cagliostro, it is somewhat too drastically different in regards to the fact that this is one of Japan's first, like, true adult-based animated televisual series. Like, it, like people say, well, back in the day, the Flintstones was the, the Simpsons, and it was for adults. Yeah, but in the Flintstones, it was like, ah, geez, Bon, I hate being a dinosaur, and also I hate my wife. And in Lupin, someone will get shot through the face, and then you'll see a titty. I think that there's like a massive difference in terms of spectrum. I want to ask, where was the titty? Because you kept mentioning that this is technically supposed to be a very adult anime. Oh, uh, well, not in like, no, Cagliostro took all of those elements out. Oh. Like, Hayao Miyazaki absolutely neutered all of Lupin's, like, crass maturity. But in the part one anime, there's blood, boobs, and uh, battles, as far as the eye can see. There are gunfights, there's bleeding. Uh, the uh, femme fatale character of Fujikamine gets naked quite a lot. And <laughs> that's kind of like, that was an early staple of her character. So it definitely was, in it was intended for older audiences, but there was no way of going around it. And that's why it didn't do so well when it first aired, because Japan hadn't really, aside from, no, even stuff like, like Astro Boy and Tetsujin 28, like in the 60s, anime hadn't really, like it, it experimented with stories that may have been deeper than cartoons in, a, on, in America, but still was firmly implanted the idea of this is a medium for children. In fairness, that is still- very Oh, very much so, but even more so. Yeah, so, so I can understand that. Because there is a lot of dissonance for people- um, Who don't know anything about cartoons. They firmly think it is, it's yeah, a children's people medium. People are aware of cartoons, when they first get exposed to things like Adult Swim, it yeah. can feel extremely jarring. jarring. Um, and there can be this type of dissonance that makes them uncomfortable, and they might not be willing to watch more of a TV show because of that cognitive dissonance. In many ways, that's kind of why Hayao Miyazaki, when he was given the project in 1978 to 1979, he was like, okay, so I'm going to make this more universal, I'm going to take out these elements that I don't really care for, and I think audiences will struggle to latch onto, and make it more approachable for general audiences, but I watched some of the part one anime, and it is a bunch of fun. It's very dated by today's standards, very stiff animation, and some of the storylines may be, you know, a little quaint, shall we say? But in regards to what an episodic adult TV series was at the time, Lupin is so revolutionary. Like, you can see the DNA of shows like Cowboy Bebop. In, in Lupin the first? Yes, exactly. Like, Lupin will go through, like, an episode structure of the gang goes on a heist, and maybe something goes wrong, and then a twist happens, where quite often, you know that trick that anime uses, where, like, either a musical number will play over something, like, sad or tragic happening, or, like, they'll cut the sound out during, like, say, a gunfight or a death scene. Lupin does that a lot, and I think it's one of the pioneers of a lot of anime tropes, you know, like, you know, the, the characters of Jigen, the, the ace gunman with uh, the fedora tilted, uh, uh, Fujikomine, the femme fatale, who 
is you know in fairness those were tropes oh there were those those were tropes but these were codified you can clearly tell like directors like Shinichiro Watanabe create like one of the many creators of Cowboy Bebop kind of taking the Lupin formula and sort of adding his twist on it like um Goemon Ishikawa the samurai dude like you know that anime trope where it's like a swordsman is like my blade is sharper than a lightning storm and he cuts like a, a building in half Goemon is essentially the the genesis of that trope he kind of started that whole what if samurai was so good he could cut bullets? That that was kind of going on, was one of the progenitors of that. Really? Yeah. I, I'm kind of... Okay. Yeah, no, it's a, it, like Lupin, Lupin's DNA in terms of just general TV anime is all over the place. It, it has influenced everything. It's super important, but we just don't have the context to it because we had like very scattered releases. Lupin never hit it big here except with this film, which is why when people think Lupin in English-speaking circles, they think this family-friendly Spielbergian-esque adventure film. So, um... So kind of like how a lot of people view, let's say, Spider-Man or other superhero movies, Mm. um, and that that was essentially their first exposure. None of them have actually read any of the comics, but it was... You haven't read that one where Spider-Man gives his wife cancer by ejaculating into her? You fucking fake fans. (laughs) (laughs) I was there. It was terrible. <laughs> There's a lot of bad comics for all of the heroes, uh, but that's the point. So, in a weird way, this is sort of the this is a progenitor even that trope. Well, a little bit, but like I do want to phrase part one because it is still quite fun. Like hell, it got a dub like a year ago, meaning that. It was it, it. Lupin is very much still. We're valuable. recording in 2022. Exactly. So Lupin the first got a dub with the part two cast, which is the most prominent cast in the Lupin dub canon. Literally last year, people still very much care about this. Like Lupin the part, Lupin the third part six is technically still airing now. It just it will never stop. Huh. Yeah, it's an extremely valuable commodity. Damn, yeah, Lupin's just... audience is very dedicated. Yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, it's huge in Japan. It should be noted that it, this this shit will never stop making money in the home in the home country of Nippon. But getting back to part one, I just do want to highlight a couple of key episodes that I particularly enjoyed. So uh, there's the second episode called uh, A Man They Called a Magician, where Lupin and Jigen kind of are fighting this gangster guy who's after this a roll of film, and bullets can't seem to stop him, and he can shoot fire from his hands. And they're essentially fighting a Batman villain, and that and that, that that's fun. He actually shows up in a, a later movie. That's a very iconic episode. Uh, there was episode four, One Chance for a Prison Bake, where Inspector Zenigata, the dude in the trench coat, is always chasing Lupin, who's essentially like the, the, the foil for all of these funny stories. He finally captures Lupin, but Lupin essentially just tortures him by just staying in this prison for a year and refusing to escape. That's a very funny episode. And uh, episode nine, a hitman sings the blues about uh, one of Fujiko's ex-lovers who was a hitman and they used to work together, kind of coming back. That one is very Cowboy Bebop in regards to just very sort of moody blues, these... Um, the thieves who used to work together, this idea of a lost romance and sort of like a, uh, a, a thief with a heart of gold who's really a sucker for women. Like that episode in particular is extremely Cowboy Bebop. But all of these episodes were directed by one, getting his name up now, Masaki Asumi. He was the guy who kind of helmed early part one. Uh, the, the trouble is this wasn't making any money. Like Lupin was tanking in terms of ratings. 
because oh. it really it didn't have an audience yet because people were like cartoons with boobies and blood this will poison the minds of the children I am a Japanese citizen in 1972. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were all part of the Yakuza. That's yeah, what that it was. They yeah, were that all was. part of the Yakuza. Yeah, th- there we go. There we go. That that makes a lot more sense. If anything, that makes my <laughs> my authentic impression uh, more, <laughs> more accurate. There we go. Uh, did, I like to think that in terms of the Japanese dialect, everyone who works at the Yakuza just like talks in sort of like a vague Chicago accent. Oh, I was thinking some weird American Italian swirl. That's why. You, that's what you were doing, and that's why the Yakuza thing kind of fit for me. Well, it's both. It's both. Um, so he directed the initial nine episodes, but then they were like, "Yeah, this isn't making any money. Yeah, you're getting booted." And so Hayao Miyazaki and uh, Isao Takahata, who would be known for making Studio Ghibli years later, they came sliding in, and they were like, "Well, I don't really have any TV experience, but uh." I guess I can kind of make this a goofy children's show retroactively. And so their episodes for the rest of the 23-episode run, which was cancelled because it wasn't making its money back, period. That was very sort of up and down in terms of quality. It was clearly two directors who were like, um, uh, I don't really know what to do here. Uh, Could you identify what the tension in the styles was? The tension in the styles is the fact that it was sort of Lupin and the gang very much committed to the fact that they're kind of anti-heroes. Okay. In, in the for early in the early sort of parts of the initial season, uh, it, it definitely had a. It was still goofy, but it definitely had a tone of these people were very willing to kill, very willing to be apathetic about life, like actual thieves. But Miyazaki and Takahata made them sort of more goofy, more carefree, and it definitely did kind of like tonally clash. Ah. Granted, nowadays, like that sort of middle ground of um, gunfights and goofy shenanigans is very much it is a refined art in Lupin, but back then it couldn't quite find its footing. But then Miyazaki got a chance to redo this because this is the second Lupin film. The first Lupin film, uh, a Mystery of Malmo, came out and was a big, big success. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So big success in the 1970s uh, because the revamped Lupin the Third Part Two TV series was airing, and that kind of kind of really nailed the formula. That's where Lupin's wearing the snazzy red jacket. So essentially, Lupin found its footing, and so they kind of they wanted to make an, another movie in the in the style of it. But Miyazaki took a different approach, essentially, and he wanted to make something that was more, shall we say. General. I think I have a key quote here. I'll just uh, pull it up. There we go. So in regards to like targeting existing Lupin fans who were like the people who went and saw like Secret of Mamo, he says, if I target the existing fans, I thought it would probably ended up being no more than an insider joke. I didn't want that. I thought this film should be universally appealing. I wanted to make a film which, if for instance, a random old man from a mountain in a foreign country happens to come across, even he would enjoy it. I mean, that's that's a really good philosophy if you're going to be making AAA big boy movies. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, obviously, but also just like in terms of franchise films in general, I think one of the reasons that it was able to succeed overseas is that most distributors dropped the title Lupin and just called it Castle or Cagliostro when distributing it to America, for instance. They didn't... Here's the thing. A long story short, I'm not going to get into this, but, but like the estate of like the Arsene Lupin novels in France kind of was disputing whether Japan had like the proper rights to actually use the name Lupin. So for years, like in the version you watched on Netflix, they never call him Lupin. They call him Wolf. And that's because they legally couldn't use the name. 
Okay, you have also, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's, it's still- All we are is tangents. It's this, this entire show is just us doing tangents for 90 minutes. This does need to be addressed. Why was Japan so intent? Because this isn't the only one. Why was Japan so intent on doing adaptations of Western projects? I, I, here's the thing. That's a big ass question. I can only give like a vague sort of answer, but I think it's one of the reasons that, um, one, uh, Hiroshima happened, and uh, uh, America had an undeniable. Oh, you're just gonna blame the bomb again. <laughs> oh. That's that's uh, that's all of anime. That's all of anime can be traced back to. Whoopsie, we did a war crime, oh. <laughs> and America occupied this nation for the next ten years. You're just gonna whine about that bomb over and over again. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, uh, apologies. I, I'm 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 spilling my soy milk everywhere by caring about human history. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but uh no i think it's because well one i think it's because like manga was only starting to get off the ground maybe because people were sort of aware of the universal appear of fairy tales because in the, in the 60s and 70s a lot of sort of western literature was kind of pseudo adapted uh truth is i don't fully know but i'd imagine that because of the western influence that japan was kind of forced onto in the 1950s with its rebuilding and, and american occupation had likely probably like something to do with that, though I'm not an expert. But with Cagliostro itself, whilst I pull up a few more notes, let's hear from you in regards to like your favorite moments of the film, what you thought was interesting, what you thought was of note to hear now. Oh, um, so it's so weird because mm. the thing is, it's so 70s in so many ways. Yeah. Like the designs are... Character design designs mm. are definitively 70s. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. The the face shape of both um Lupon and uh what's the inspector's name again? Zenigata. Zenigata. They both look the head shapes are both like it's, beans. It's, it's very, very they look yeah. like beans. Yes, yes, very much. Like the sort of very, very uh sort of pointed fin bottoms of the, uh, of the head but also the, the sort of like elongated forehead is very much the lupon style yes they're beans um, <laughs> so they have the shape the head shape of a bean um Please butler have, like, the butler looks this. like the prime villain like some strange mix of a bond villain and like the evil witch from every disney property ever <laughs> Um, yeah, no, that's that. That's very fair. And the fact that he's just the underling to Count Cagliostro is that's that's an interesting little choice. Yeah, and uh, what I thought was super interesting, and it's such a strange cocktail of influences. But the um, what is essentially the henchman of Cagliostro, not the armed guards, mm. but the weird dudes with the fingers. Yes, that reminded me so much of two things. One. The foot soldiers from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm -hmm. um, well, a uh, fun fact, actually, um, a lot of what people don't know about this is I'm actually going to come back to this point. Um, a lot of Japanese animation directors in the 80s and uh, in particular got a lot of their starts by doing in between and key animation for American cartoons. Like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. If you ever like watched the old 80s show and like, wow, the intro is really well animated, but the rest of it looks like fucking shit. That's because it was done in Japan. The intro was done in Japan under Toei Animation. Oh. So it's very likely key figures like uh, Hayao Miyazaki or other such famous people who worked at Toei who then went on to either do Ghibli or do other things at say TMS. A lot of people worked in American cartoons. Which is actually like a perfect link to what I'm going to talk about now is, and I think you'll agree with me, the car chase. 
Yeah, that was what I was going to mention. In fairness, just as a quick side bit, just to cap off the thing. It's also probably because they also spent more money on the opening, just because they were going to show that <laughs> every episode. Yes. But, yes. Um, Welcome to animation production. Yes. Yeah. Uh, however, going back to what you were talking about, the car chase, mm. that was the thing I was going to get. As soon as I mentioned the fact that the foot soldiers remind me both of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle foot soldiers, uh, the Scooby-Doo anime. Yes. Because of the way the fucking, the dudes like, like do their weird bug movement. Because they have that weird little... It's very cartoony and expressive, the animation in this film. Yeah. It's not what you'd expect from quote-unquote anime. Yes, and there's a brilliantly sinister quality to the only genuinely detailed aspect of the foot soldiers being their hands. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which is very cool. Um, But yeah, uh, sorry, going back to what you were just going to talk about. It's... It's a fantastic chase. It starts from Jigen and Lupin just chilling whilst they're chain, changing their car's tire. That when like the big band or, or jazz orchestra kicking in when the the henchmen are chasing Clarice, uh, Jigen and Lupin going up uh, the hills. The fact they're driving on the side, uh, Jigen's gonna change to the round in his revolver to try and penetrate their tires. It is. It's fantastic. It's, it was literally the the only the only uh, big disappointment of this car chase is there wasn't something similarly uh, it, there wasn't something better at the end of the film. That's, That's yeah. It's it's kind of it's it's a weird sort of it's weird to open something that should be a climax in the first ten minutes of the film. But it, it, oh, it's the best animated. Uh, speaking of um. Uh, the Fiat 500 uh, Chase, which is the type of car, was key animated by uh, Kazuhide uh, Tomonaga, who later in his career went to work for Warner Brothers, doing various cartoons like Tiny Toon Adventures and probably probably stuff on Batman and, and uh, other stuff like that, which is extremely appropriate because his sort of Looney Tunes-like dynamic and yet precision in terms of weight and motion is on spectacular display here. This might... It's 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 very possible that this is the peak of the movie. This car chase is perfect in almost every single way. It, it, it's Hayao Miyazaki has like a philosophy of mixing reality and fiction in terms of like he thinks that's super necessary for animation in terms of to make it believable but also not be boring. And from the bouncy energy to the realistic looking car mechanisms, all of it is just done so wonderfully and it's two minutes it, it's two to four minutes of a sequence such a short sequence but it was so good it helps that miyazaki is a big motoring enthusiast uh he really likes to draw cars he really likes to draw planes and tanks and and stuff like that uh fun fact actually um Lupin Part 1 drives a Mercedes-Benz circa like around 1928 and the reason they so, ch- so just to give the yes. listeners some context this car looks like the Monopoly thing, the Monopoly statue. Yes. <laughs> That's what it looks like, like. Elongated front, very sort of, I'd say in run Open cylind- top. Yeah, op- open top, cylindrical shape. What you'd think of sort of like a sporty car in the 1920s, yes. But it was a pain in the ass to draw. And in order for this chase scene to be as fluid as it was, they decided to change it to the more rounded and more Herbie-looking Fiat 500, which one of the producers happened to own so they could get a lot of reference material. And the Fiat 500, since then, has become Lupin's iconic getaway vehicle. 
which is weird because it's a it's a dinky little car. But I honestly really like the designer. I think it's understated but powerful, which I think is a good sort of it's metaphor not- for the game. Yes, I've just known people who've owned Fiats. Um, and they've claimed... Yeah, that- but this was the 1960s when they could build cars that didn't, you know, fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> but no, um, this... Which, here's the thing, what's super impressive about this, because it's not necessarily as sort of as fluid or as full of motion as Miyazaki's future projects, largely because this was the 70s and animation as a whole was still kind of trying to get its thing together. Like, this was... This was this was pre Mobile Suit Gundam. This was pre a lot of very sort of like big stuff that would like take anime in like a very distinct direction in the in the following decades. But Caso Caliostro was animated in seven months. Seven months. Yes. Yes. Seven, seven months. They were given like a, an extremely sh- yeah. So okay, th- you said animated. What about storyboarding so, and scripting? Here's the thing. Um, Miyazaki. Wanted to have half of the storyboards done by the beginning of production. He had a quarter of them done. So he was still storyboarding this film as it was being animated. So they actually probably didn't did yeah, they so like, finish the plot? Yes, they they, they did. There I is there is stuff all, well in mostly, like famously, a lot of stuff was cut in regards to what they wanted to do, but it I imagine the film would likely be the same if they added it back in. It probably just would have sequences would have been longer. Okay. This film has a pretty tight pacing, but yeah, I think this is this is evidence that anime has always been an incredibly rushed and stressful production, and it's been fucked since the 70s. Dear God, Japan, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> uh. Yeah, no, it was an, it was noted to be an incredibly stressful production on all sides. And Miyazaki, I think one of the reasons he moved on to his more dicta- dictatorship-like directing style in his future was the fact that he had such a bad experience working on early stuff like this and say Future Boy Conan and other stuff in the 70s. And he was like, fuck it, it's my way or the highway. And he's kind of sort of, he he will die with that philosophy, I find. I mean, the, this is this is very much Hayao Miyazaki. At this point, he is like extremely stuck in his ways. Yeah, that's very fair. But like at this time, it's important to note that we talk about a lot of people in terms of anime who were like young upstarts who were like geniuses from the, from the beginning or they were like, they always knew they wanted to work in anime. Uh, people of Miyazaki's period kind of just did this as a job. They just did this because they were decent at drawing. And it's important to note, like, this is Hayao Miyazaki's first movie. He was 42 when he first directed this. So he was one of those people who was, like, key animating and in-between animating, like, doing the grunt work for, for decades all across the industry before he finally got his shot to direct a feature film as part of a, a decently big franchise like Lupin. This is actually a huge boon to anyone who feels like they've wasted their life and they're only in their 30s. Hayao Miyazaki didn't start directing until he was 42. Yeah, and he, and even then, he hated, he hated doing this movie. <laughs> exactly. So, if you feel like you wasted your life, don't worry. Just relax. Like, for every story of, like, a genius who was, like, a project from age 12, there's, like, a hundred stories of people who had no idea what the fuck they were doing. So just just keep doing what you're doing, people. That's the, that's the Guru Gamesh message. But no, like, Miyazaki's Lupin is very, sort of, whim- whimsical. <laughs> Def- definitely taking, like, the gentleman thief approach other than, you know, Monkey Punch's Lupin, who is, um, how do I put this tactically? A rapist. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's not even me making. Tactfully, that, I that's don't think not it was direct. Me. I just don't think it was tactfully. That's I'm not making an edgy joke. Um, early Lupin manga strips are extremely edgy, and even here he will admit saying, 
yeah, I was, I kind of went a little too far. Like, think that one scene where Sean Connery is James Bond, locks that woman in a barn, times like five. That was a lot of early Lupin stories. And so a lot of this sort of crass sexuality, Miyazaki kind of took a hacksaw to. So Vujiko is completely desexed in this movie. That She knows shows no skin. She wears like a camo uniform, which is never seen again in any of her incarnations. Lupin is not lecherous in the slightest, which helps because uh, Clarice the girl is canonically 17. So, you know. Wait, good. is she? Because she yes. actually went off to, to university. Yeah, it's pretty directly stated. She went off to you. Well, it's university. That might be like a streamline dubism. Maybe. That's fair enough. Although Wait. that that would make sense because they're trying to justify the later plot point. Of- yeah, that's that's the, the fact that she wants to. Although, in fairness to Lupin, he does reject her advances. Well, that's 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 one of the more key moments of this movie is the fact that you'd see him sort of wanted to take this young, sweet girl along with him, but then he makes the mature decision, which, like, manga Lupin would never make. And even to a, a lesser extent, I'd say modern maybe TV series Lupin would even sort of struggle with making. But... I think with that sort of talk of this more, shall we say, child-friendly version of the character, I think Miyazaki says that uh, in this sort of paraphrased quote in a 1981 interview, he says that the structure of Lupin is a very loose one. There's no unchangeable or untouchable image of Lupin the Third, which we are bound to. It can take anything. We can throw anything at it. It encompasses anything and everything. So Atsuka-san, who was like a producer that helped make this movie, so there were lots of different interpretations. If there are a hundred people, then there are a hundred different Lupins that exist as well. This is, I should also say that this is sort of like loosely translated, so a lot of this might come off as Englishy. I apologize. So essentially, his version of Lupin definitely is someone who kind of lived his glory days in the 60s, and now that this film is set in the rough 70s, he's sort of living in maybe regret and maybe shameful of his younger actions. I think that's one something that Miyazaki was kind of trying to go for. Like, he, he doesn't drive a Mercedes-Benz anymore. He drives, like, a Fiat. He doesn't, you know, use an expensive, fancy lighter. He'll, he'll just use an, uh, a disposable one. Like, this sort of Lupin seems very emotionally mature, which is... I don't know. His Fiat 500 does have a quite a, like a does rocket jet engine. Does have a jet engine. Uh, that might be Jigen's influence. But um, that is interesting to observe that sort of a take, because this definitively is a loop on the third movie. The, the extended cast of Goemon Ishikawa, Daisuke Jigen, and Fujiko Mine, they get their moments, but they don't, they kind of just chill and wait for Lupin to do stuff. Like, the, the central focus is on Clarice, Count Cagliostro, and Lupin. That def- definitely does seem like to be the central storyline of this film, which does help with it being focused, but it is a shame that the gang doesn't get more to do in arguably yeah. the most incarnation- most iconic incarnation of this movie. So this is an important point to point, and this is an important thing to point out and consider. Mm. So a huge uh, criticism, and a fair criticism, a huge uh, fair criticism of older media was that it was always very uh, male-centric or male hero-centric. Like, the Mm. hero is always the person that does stuff. Everyone else is just along for the ride, so to speak. Yeah, and I I do think this kind of falls into that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. But... The thing that people don't seem to understand, or at least they didn't, uh, I don't know how much people understood it when they make those criticisms, or at least the newer ones do. Uh, I don't know how much they, the newer people understand, mm-hmm. is that when you're constructing a story to make it feel focused, to make it feel tight, and to make the, 
audience feel like they're along with the story, mm-hmm. it's important to actually have fewer acting characters. Yes. Like people pushing the plot along. Because otherwise, people will just get confused, and then they start zoning out, and then you've lost them. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a very fair point. I think this this movie is easy to follow, if nothing else. Oh, so easy to follow. And it's just a great romp. And so people... And again, this is not to say pro or anti anything, but it's just an explanatory point. And I feel like that's something to consider in the future when you're watching... Um, either animate or even just general media. Mm-hmm. Like, who are the people that are actually acting and pushing? I think, I think this is one of the reasons that Lupin the Third, or at least Caso Cagliostro, is so accessible, is because it's that straddle line of, you know, Japanese animation techniques and also more, shall we say, Western-leaning aesthetic or storyline or, yeah. or stuff like that. The fact like that true middle ground is, is really met with this film. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just that it's always super important to consider. Um, so I'm glad like storytelling got better as times move forward. So but it, it functions. I love this. Might be my favorite Miyazaki film, not because I make I think it's the best, but because you know it appeals to my adventure sense. Like I love Indiana Jones and other like you know uh, Sky Captain, The World of Tomorrow. I love adv- like campy adventure films. I absolutely adore, and this fits that bill tremendously. I can't lie. I, I admittedly, I haven't watched that many uh, Hayao Miyazaki films. Mm. It's um, the cutesy uh, aesthetic mixed in with the light plot details has never really appealed to me. Um, however, yeah, I think out of all the ones I've seen so far, mm. this is my favorite. Well, that's because it, it's it definitively is an action adventure flick, which was one the goal from the beginning. Like I'd say. For more action oriented Miyazaki fare, I'd say for your taste, stuff like. Uh, Princess Mononoke or um, uh, Va- Nasica Valley of the Wind might be more up your street in regards to just more sort of like action driving the plot in, in, in regards to that. But no, I'm talking about like other really cool moments of this. I love the aesthetic of the castle, which was heavily based on, let's see, it was heavily based on a novel known as The Girl with Green Eyes, which was an Arsene Lupin novel which was heavily used for this kind of inspiration of this sort of gothic European castle, which is very effective as, as a setting because you've got a mixture of knights fighting riot cops. You've got a mixture of samurai uh, fighting European counts. You've got like this weird homeless man with an anti-tank rifle. <laughs> it's just, it's a mishmash of adventure film iconography. And I think one of the biggest scenes that kind of encompasses this is the clock tower fight scene which is really good and i cannot begin to i mean i'll attempt to because that's the point of the show but it did the clock tower has so many influences in western animation from batman the animated series to the great mouse detective a lot of a lot of western animators have paid tribute to this scene in particular can you give a few examples i just did <laughs> yeah, so there's there's a fight in the Batman animated series episode. No, I, I meant names. Uh, Are there any fa- famous animators themselves? I would. I mean, I, I I sadly don't have them to hand currently, but I would imagine. But then again, I I can I can do that later for other scenes. So, for instance, um, the director of Atlantis: The Lost Empire, the 2000 Disney movie. So uh, the director of that, uh, Gary Trosdale, uh, has sort of gone on record to say that Loop on the Third, Castle of Cagliostro, has definitively influenced, like, some of some scenes, especially, like, when, uh, I think there's a scene in Atlantis when, like, floodgates open. That's that's based on the scene in Lupin where the tower comes oh. down. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. The Simpsons movie borrowed some. Yeah, yeah. I'm serious. <laughs> yeah, the Simpsons movie borrowed. Uh, I think it was the scene where uh, Lupin does the rooftop run. You know the. Like yeah. it's the synth that was animated by Atsuko uh, Tanaka, who sort of that that is sort of in the beginning shots where Lupin and Jigen are robbing the casino, but they realize the bills are fake. Like yeah. that is a prelude to that sort of rooftop scene where Lupin runs and almost like Disney like keeps jumping on to a top rooftop. So I think that's paid homage in the Simpsons movie. Uh, so this influence is all over Western animation, like. I mean, famous Disney animator and sex criminal uh, John Lassander really, really enjoyed this film. Uh, it's a shame he failed to learn the primary lesson of be nice to women, you fucking creep. And uh, yeah, he directed the Toy Story movie. So like a lot of people at Disney in particular really took influence from this style. Which is interesting to consider. Considering Hayao Miyazaki completely disavows the comparison to Disney and fucking hates everything he did. I mean, he just hates everything. Yeah, He's I mean, like, animators was a mistake. <laughs> My son was a mistake. I was a mistake. Cats are okay, though. He took the sun part back. Yeah, 50 years too late. <laughs> Poor Goro. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the, the influence of this film cannot be understated. I, I mean, that being said, I think I should also mention that I think um, Hayao Miyazaki was heavily inspired by a French film called The King and the Mockingbird. It was made in 1957. This was a big influence on Miyazaki and the aesthetic of this movie. And uh, I couldn't find clips online in time, but a commentary track on the discotheque Lupin uh, Blu-ray made heavy mention of this, so I thought I'd, I'd talk about it up top. Uh, so yeah, anything else you want to add to any sort of favorite moments, any sort of like favorites, just just scenes? Because there's a lot in this movie. It packs a lot into about sort of 90 minutes it's of runtime. Just so superbly paced. I just have nothing but respect for like. I think it was just really well paced and well done. Um, I like the fact that the sort of B subplot of uh the inspector. Oh, his name's Zenigata. Zenigata, uh, Inspector Zenigata, just actually weaving it to be a bit in the A-plot and then back... Yeah, no, like, the whole thing about the counterfeit bill and the whole sort of the Count trying to get the keys to the secret of Cagliostro and then it's revealed at the end that the secret is not really something you can really monetize in a traditional way. It's, it's ancient Roman ruins, which I thought was extremely interesting. And that whole scene of the clock tower coming down and these ancient ruins being revealed with Clarice and Lupin just like casually strolling. It's there's a lot of really quiet moments in this film, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I mean, bit of a plot hole, but I'm gonna uh, and a giant nitpick, so I'll say it anyway. I know exactly what you're talking about, but go ahead. Listen, water degrades shit. It doesn't preserve a fucking <laughs> thing, right? That shit would have just been destroyed faster. I don't know what idea his, his parents had by flooding a beautiful thing. I don't I don't think it was I don't think anyone flooded it by purpose. Yeah, that kind of... That kind I of, mean, it kind of is on purpose that, if they have the ability to un unflood it. Yeah, that kind of... That kind of falls down a little bit, but the movie is so enjoyable that you really don't care. Like, the yeah. yeah, the reveal is... If anything, it's more for the pretty imagery and sort of the calm 
uh, vibes, for lack of a more oh, educated yeah. word. It's like, uh, oh, speaking of calm vibes, the oh, what did you think of the opening song? Like the opening sort of pastel colored montage where it's just Lupin and Jigen just like traveling around Europe. They're just chilling out, smoking. The opening vibes were amazing. It was so weird. But the problem is, is that the opening is in to a certain extent contrast to what actually happens yeah, in the that's, movie. That's, that's kind of what an interesting sort of juxtaposition because the, the opening has a classic Lupin heist situation where they, they run with big cartoonish bags of money. Uh, the goons who are chasing them have all their cars cut in half by uh, an invisible Goemon. And after they kind of dispose of all the bills when they realize they're fake, it kind of cuts to this sort of beautiful melody, which is composed by the legendary uh, Yuji Ono, who is the big sort of jazz composer who did like the very famous Loop on the Third theme among the famous title theme of this, who which is sung by a rock artist, uh, Toshia uh, Kiara. And it's possibly one of the, the most known Lupin insert tracks in all of the franchise. It's a big favorite. It's it's definitive sort of lo-fi beats to chill and study to aesthetic because it uses a lot of pastel pinks and oranges and greens. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I enjoy the lo-fi when I'm trying to work, and it can be quite a vibe. Uh, it's just an that lo-fi mm. chilled vibe with the pastel beautiful colors mm. is in somewhat of a contrast to what ends up happening in the movie. And I think that's kind of the point. Like, there's a lot of just quiet contemplation. Like, this, we've mentioned this multiple times, but for a lot of people, what may be their first exposure to anime because of the sort of pseudo-Ghibli brand that this movie often gets associated with, silence is a big key of Japanese animation, and it's not used to... Well, it's getting better, obviously, now, because... American animation has been evolving in terms of its emotional maturity for the past three decades. But silence is an important com component of a lot of Miyazaki's films. Like even early dubs of Miyazaki's films, like uh, Castle in the Sky or Nausicaa, kind of put in background music just to make it more palatable, quote unquote, to Western audiences. And it kind of robs them, robs them of their atmosphere. But thankfully, uh, getting onto the dub of this film, well, dubs, I should say. That mostly doesn't happen. So you watch the watch this on Netflix. So you watch the what's known as the 1991 uh, Streamline Pictures dub. So oh, what do you think okay. of it? Um, honestly, it wasn't bad. No, no, no it, it, it was considering this was functional. Dubbed, yeah, this was dubbed in 1991. You could go a hell of a lot worse. Okay, considering it was dubbed in 1991, this is unusually good. Yeah. Um. However. It's still a dubism. Yeah, that, that, that's very that's very fair. Like a lot, a lot. I wouldn't. I like if somebody said to me they were gonna watch this movie and they said they really wanted to watch it in the English dub. I've got a point for you later on. Okay. But um, before I get to that, fun fact: um, Bob Bergen, who voices Lupin in this and also the dub of uh, Mystery of Mamo, um, 
He is the modern voice of Porky Pig. Oh, yeah, no, Bob Bergen is the it was the voice of Porky Pig throughout most of the 21st century, and also dubbed Luke Skywalker in a lot of the Star Wars games. I couldn't even find this country on the roadmap. It's the world's smallest nation. The total population here is only 3,500. What makes you think this is where the counterfeit money came from? First, I figured out where it couldn't have come from. Purely a process of elimination. So, where do we go from here? I haven't figured that part out yet. But trust me, my intuition never fails. Well, wake me when we get there, will you? If we get there. But no, like, um, there's, there's, there are two English dubs for this, uh, particularly, because in the 2000s, I think Genion Entertainment, or it may have been Manga Entertainment, commissioned a dub that was more faithful to the original movie. And this one is... There are technically two versions of this one. One has a few naughty words sprinkled in, but it's nothing. It's not like Lupin says, FUCK! It, it's usually just like a, an occasional like, oh shit, oh damn it. Like the standard sort of animated swearing-isms, but it's nothing. I think people sort of... And look, people sit all saying, oh, so they added swearing to it. It's really not that bad. It's fine. You barely notice it. But aside from more faithful language and more faithful sort of characterizations to a certain degree, Lupin is voiced by one David Hater in this dub. That's right, guys. Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, no, no. Like, this is before, I mean, I think this is around about the time he was writing the first X-Men movie. And Solid Snake yeah, yeah. is Lupin. Here's the thing. What's real? I'll throw a few clips in for comparison. But what's really enjoyable about David Hayter's performance here is he's known for playing gruff, more cynical kind of characters. But in this, it's it's a lot more higher and it's a, a kind of goofy. And it, it's really inter- it's really enjoyable. Like he's gone on record to say this is one of his favorite performances he's ever done. I'll never be able to escape the count. Please, just go. How can there be a happy ending to this romantic tale? The fair damsel believes in the power of the wicked sorcerer, yet she has no faith in the powers of the thief. Oh, if only she'd believe in him. Then he'd be able to fly through the air or drink every last drop of water in the lake in one gulp. Hmm? <laughs> one gulp. <laughs> This will have to do for now. And it makes it oh so charming. I love this version of Lupin, and obviously credit to the original Japanese, uh, uh, Yasuke Yamada, who voiced Lupin for decades, literally decades. But I would I'd, I'd honestly recommend, if you want to see this in English, I would track down the 2000 version. It, there, is an, there is an option to view it without any naughty words, if you want to watch this with like a, a, a family-based audience, and that dub is also great. They just like change a few things here and there. But I think we're coming up to the end of this, and honestly... I think I've said everything I need to say about this. I can't think of a ton more to say either. I think it's worth noting, like, people like... I mean, I think you've mentioned this all... Or you have mentioned this already. But people like Steven Spielberg, uh, some, 
not just Steven Spielberg, mm. but Steven Spielberg as an example, well, of some of the most popular and important directors mm. in Hollywood consider this among their favorite animated movies. Well, of all the Spielberg link is a little tenuous as we've never got an, any actual proof that he's seen the movie, but he did give an interview in the 1970s talking about how he firmly believes that all directors should be animators first because animators need to have an idea a definitive idea of what will happen next what will happen in a shot will happen in a frame like you know piece by piece and he says that he thinks that directors need to adopt a similar philosophy in order to sort of make the best films and i would say that that philosophy is basically just hayao miyazaki summed up i think the toughest thing for a director to do is to know what he wants. It's not how to get what you want, it's knowing what you want. So many people make movies, they don't know what they want. They say, well, I, I think I want this. I think I want the person to scream now, or I think I want you to act like you're happy, no, scared. You know, I mean, <laughs> I've heard this before, I've, I've heard this, and once you know what you want, getting it is not that hard. It just takes time if you really want to stick to it. If you have a very clear cut, that's why I'm so in love with the Disney animators. Why I think animation is, is the father of, of you know, you know, cinema, live action cinema, because they have to have in their mind a clear picture, of how a chipmunk rolls over in the snow. They got to know what each side of that chipmunk looks like, and they don't build chipmunks and roll them over in fake snow. They have to use their imaginations and paint these things 12, 12 cells a second, and how the fur moves and how the wind's blowing, and it's it, it's it's just. That's why I think all directors should be animators first. Because you really can take the imagination and become something tangible. It's, it's, it's you know, just something you can hold in your hand. You can say, can you see this? No? Well, I can. You know? And then you make that. Make that happen. And I think that's really interesting that Keeble people brought that up. So maybe you see Lupin. Who knows? Who knows? So, yeah, I'm extremely happy about this episode. Um, I want to give a few... Uh, thanks to uh, uh, thanks to my research assistant Paul, who I sweatily message on Discord at 3am saying, "I need this Lupin quote from 1981. What did Hayao Miyazaki say about this old man on a farm?" And then I'm like, "Yeah, I'll find it." Thank you. Uh, also, the director's commentary on the discotheque uh, Blu-ray release of Lupin: Castle of Cagliostro was incredibly helpful. It's where most of my notes came from. And thank you to you for listening. But anyway, um, we're back. It's time for season two after our extended hiatus because whoopsie do we had to do a grown up. Wait, is this the start or was Oh no, 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 no. God knows what order I'll release this in. <laughs> a peek behind the curtain, folks. But yeah. Um this has been the Garugamash Podcast. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Garugamash Pod. Um send us emails or uh, gmail write into us i really want to get that going uh tell us we're wrong about things it's my favorite i love contemplating that late at night and last of all i love sushi i love japan i'd love you more for staying a fan good night everyone bye too late to give you back my receipt is gone and i'm starting to look back at everything that's going wrong Know how I used to long to hold you in my hand. Such a shame it took six weeks shipping directly from Japan. 
not gonna lie, you were kawaii, but now your paint job's chipped away. Mariama away blues, my plastic wife. Your shining gloss once put my family in strife for what I owe to you. I swear I could die All these body pillows I left hanging dry Oh darling, we're a mess Listening to Garuga Mesh